0: episode of the That podcast. Uh today we welcome Colby Mancosola from Knapsack, Newly reformed Reunion Plans are, have been announced and of course it's a great chance to catch up on the past, present and future of the band. So Colby, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks so much. Uh it's good to be here. Awesome.
0: What got you into music early early on? Were, was it
1: were, have you always been in California? I uh grew up in Northern California um in a town called Redding. It's It's like 100,000 people now with no college. Uh, Back then, it was maybe half that or a little more. Wow. Um, You know, my dad's a... I grew up in a some people a lot of people say musical family and they mean um, a family of musicians. Um, but I grew up in a musical family, just in the sense of always being around, um, always having music playing, whether it was the Beatles or Led Zeppelin. Or I even remember a time uh, when my dad got home from work and was talking my ear off about how great, uh, like you know, Van Halen "Diver Down" was, or one of those uh, early records. Could have been women and uh, children first, but I digress. <laughs> uh, so you know it was an interesting thing uh that that set up which was how do you rebel when like, my my parents are super cool and super young and um you know great and liberal and um you know i didn't have teen angst or adolescent angst in the traditional way because it was a good time my family's wonderful uh to this day they're some you know they're my best friends and a uh, wonderful support system and so how do you rebel and and what does that look like? And what's, what kind of music could possibly piss your parents off when, you know, your dad is like, don't turn off the car yet. We need to finish, uh, you know, uh, this Led Zeppelin song or, you know, something like that. So um, I think the first thing that was like, it didn't piss my parents off because they're pretty hard to piss off with music. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe modern country would do it. Uh, I think I think early like hip hop, like buying 12 inches was fascinating because it was something that you had to go to a special record store in the city to do. And then it was also like the thing where my dad w well, the biggest rise you could sort of get out of my dad was like, I totally don't get this. Like there's, there's nothing about this that speaks to me at all. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, early like hip hop, 12 inches, uh, was like the first thing that I sort of came upon. That was like, oh, this could maybe be my thing. Even though I'm a white kid who lives, you know, three and a half hours from the closest major metropolitan area. Like, you know, my existence is very much not an urban existence. But at the same time, it there was like a um, there was a lot of mystery to it, and it was a whole new world, and it was codified. And it was hard to buy the records, so there was like some exclusivity and and uh, that was like the first taste of uh of that and you know it felt very different than the stuff that I would get into later, whether it was indie rock or hardcore or whatever. But if you look at those like descriptors, some of them are very- there's a lot of commonality there where it's like oh exclusivity and sort of like this codified community and and that stuff started to like. Get interesting to me. And also it was just stuff that always had to do with like the city, which I was always drawn to. And my family was one that, you know, came to San Francisco, whether it was for baseball games or other things, pretty, you know, common, Mm -hmm. uh, pretty often. So that, that sort of musically was like a seed that got planted. And then that quickly turned into like, Um, you know, maybe I saw something on 120 minutes back in the day and then that, you know, and I saw patches on the people, uh, that were older than me, you know, punk jackets and starting to put like what that looked like, um, together.
0: What was like the, what was the gateway? Do you feel like those 12 inches were the gateway into being like, well, okay, this isn't on the radio. This isn't, you know this isn't connecting people don't know about this and then you're seeing the patches you're seeing the stickers you're you're reading the liner notes what was like the gateway to being like holy crap there's this whole world out there
1: yeah, you know, it's funny. I I always joke um, with the people that I grow up with that there was a summer where, like, all the breakdance kids came back to school in September as, like, punk kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought, like, uh, it would, that would make for a funny screenplay or to somehow tie that into a movie would be would be funny. But, um, you know, I got into... Uh, the, the first two Seven Seconds records were not Seven Seconds wasn't a local band, but Reno slash Sacramento was close enough to where um, you know people maybe knew Kevin or someone from Seven Seconds, or they were just they weren't around, but like there was a a little bit of a local angle there. So you know, it's like I probably heard the first couple Seven Seconds records when I first like heard the Minor Threat record, Mm -hmm. but there was something about that. That was um that spoke to me a little more and just felt like it was it was closer and it was maybe happening kind of around us um in a way, but at the same time it's like you know I bought those records, but you know i I at the same time very much needed to go over to the uh the r e m replacements path and ease into things from that way, where it was like, oh, what seven seconds and minus thread and those guys are doing is cool and like, you know, I get that from like a certain perspective, uh, you know, I totally got wrapped up in the mystery around like the first couple REM records or, you know, all but the last two replacements records. I love the last two replacements records mm-hmm. too, but like the mystery was gone. Right. And the uh, the camaraderie of this idea of a band was gone, but like through high school, Though you know that was my thing. I was never a um i wasn't a punk kid in high school by any stretch. I was very much like uh what's now called indie rock at the time was like um you know American alternative college rock was mm-hmm. totally my jam
0: was that was there was there a record store was there like a mail order was it was it just going to shows and and local shows and kids talking about
1: it? There obviously... was no record store, to to be very clear about that. There yeah. was no record store. You could drive to um, the only Amoeba – I don't know how well you know the West Coast, but yes. on the West Coast, there Amoeba, are three Amoeba records, Berkeley, San Francisco, and L.A. At the time, it was only in Berkeley, and then there were also a couple other great record stores in Berkeley to where – and that would say from coming from where where I grew up. Stopping at Berkeley and not going into the city saved you like a half hour to an hour depending on traffic. So if you could do that, so like a great trip would be, you know, go to Berkeley and shop for records at Amoeba and a couple other places that were around at the time. And then if you could go to a show at either Gilman or or the Berkeley Square, you could just drive back home and, you know, you get home at two, three, four in the morning. But um, that was a pretty good way to spend a day when you grew up where I grew up and, you know, you're 20 years old or whatever it was. Yeah. But no, uh, a lot of mail order. When Lookout Records came around, um, it's funny. I'm friends with Chris who used to write, you know, who used to pack my – he ended up running uh, Lookout, but he used to – at the time, he used to pack the mail order envelopes and write little notes in there. And so uh, to this day, I'll still, like, geek out with him and be like (laughs) – and he's like, we've had this conversation 17 times. And stuff that. Interesting <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would always be like, remember the one time that I ordered such and such record and he wrote such and such? And he's like, do you know how many of those envelopes I packed? Like, this is, come on. Um, That's awesome. But yeah, so mail order, of course, was happening. And um, when I met Blair uh, from Knapsack, like I said, I was very much like an REM replacements, Pixies, Dinosaur Jr. kid, and he was uh, he was like a straight edge kid, um, and so his bands were like Judge and Youth, Youth of Today and, and stuff like that. And so we started to find like this common ground um, with bands that were, you know, that were sort of like the peanut butter. Ch- like meeting in the middle a little Mm -hmm. bit. And it's funny because sometimes it would just be for one song where it'd be like, Oh, the record shit. But like, but listen to this one song. They do that one thing that like, they get it. They, the pieces come together and they do it right. You know, or it's funny. It was like, uh, you know, uh, the the first couple of Fugazi records but none of the songs the gee sang on because that was like that was too abrasive you know it's like what we were looking for was like very much um you know the uh just kind of to mix and match certain pieces of, of both worlds
0: well that the, the obviously the common Theme, it's just so funny that each time when these bands meet, there's one guy that's into hardcore or like strange, most times, and then there's another guy that kind of came in from the indie world and then yeah. out, out popped <laughs> what, you know, kind of what what knapsack was it? This, this, this happened so many times.
1: Um, but yeah, so mail order was a funny thing back then because you wouldn't always even get the records that you ordered. You know, It used to be that you would put down your second and third choices if they decided that they had run out of that record, and then you'd end up with something. And uh, I think uh, – I don't know if you remember that band, Four Walls Falling. This yes, probably definitely. Going down a boring path, but I remember there was a time when uh, Blair had ordered a record – and I forget from who, but probably Revelation – and we were excited to get it and so it was like checking the mailbox after school yep. multiple days in a row or even maybe multiple weeks in a row and then he got like the he got the note that was like we didn't have your first choice but check out this record by Four Walls Falling and I don't know those guys i'm sure they're nice guys but um It was just a. It was a disappointment. It wasn't the record that it had been ordered, and it was like, "What's this? This is not. This is not what I signed up for," you know. Mm -hmm. And you just you were sort of stuck with it, Um, and that's that's how it went. Wow. The how did how did you guys meet? Was it was it again
0: over music, or you saw you know a sticker or a patch or something? Um.
1: Blair knew Blair was friendly with my friend Joel. And, um, and then ultimately my, uh, my friend Ken and we, we sort of became, he, uh, Blair Ken and I became like, you know, um, the trio running around together and we had a band together before we went to Davis. So, um, I knew Blair in high school a little bit, I think, Mm -hmm. but again, he was pretty punk. Or hardcore, or straight edge, whatever you want to call it. And I was, you know, I mean, there were probably some years early on in there where I maybe, you know, was showing up to high school with eyeliner on. So we we were inhabiting different worlds, uh, and then it kind of came together through the mutual friends. And we went to junior high, or we went to junior college, and we stayed in Reading, and we did a band called Downtime. Um, there's a there's a cassette demo that got reviewed in Maximum Rock and Roll and and maybe mail ordered by five people. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> someone showed up to a Knapsack show early on. It was like, look what I have. <laughs> We're like, destroy that thing. Oh wow! <laughs> kill kill that man and destroy that tape. Yeah. Uh, so we did this band together, and that was you know that was like uh, an interesting mix of things because. Ken, who played guitar on that stuff and is an amazing guitar player, um, was very much from my camp of like dinosaur junior replacements, whatever that we were into uh at that time. And then and then but Blair, Blair was the front man, and so it was starting to be it was feeling our way around of what like that all might sound like if you put if you put it together and you and you tried to kind of land somewhere that uh that was a place that we kept gravitating to, you know, through it's the it's you know like the one song off of 10 different records that we had kind of glommed onto and said this is what we like.
0: Yeah, I feel like that was always when you were on like a road trip or something with a bunch of friends and you had to find that one song or that one record that everyone could agree to. Yeah. Um and that kind of happened to turn into, you know, Napsack. Did you guys go to UC Davis? Did you know you both were going there?
1: We planned to go together. Wow. Yeah, so we plan to go together. I was hot on the idea of um, the the college radio station. There is is great and um, has been around and has been really strong and has always been freeform for since I think the late '60s. And so I was hot on the idea of that. I was going to go there for that reason. And um, Blair and I had the same major, which was rhetoric and communications. I mean, we were—you know—it's like we were pretty inseparable Mm -hmm. at the time um, that we moved to Davis together. We were, you know, we were in a band together. We were taking a bunch of classes together up in Reading at the junior college, and we, you know, we we lived together when we got to Davis, and so. And then, so like
0: Uh, through that, I mean, was it was the band kind of? I guess the during it was the band taken the, to the front seat was it shows music class when did when did the band kind of turn into more than more than you guys had thought or was it getting kind of serious
1: was The uh, the band was broken up when we when we left to go to to Davis and there had been that review in Maximum Rock and Roll and there was a record industry guy who got in touch with us and there was a guy who wanted to put out a seven-inch, too. Mm-hmm. And um, so it kind of became this thing of, like, there's enough interest that if we just keep these people – if we can string these people along and say, well, don't worry about – like, yeah, we're going to change the name of the band. <laughs> but other than that, like, you'll still like it. Mm-hmm. Then that'll that'll buy us time to sort of, like, figure out what we do next. Because we were moving to Davis, and we didn't really know people that – um we didn't know how to put a band together, you know, we didn't know how to like move to a new town, figure out how to not live at our parents' house, figure out how to pass classes at a university and do a band at the mm-hmm. same time, let let alone like all the fun stuff, like having a radio show that started at three in the morning or uh, going to parties or skipping school or whatever. What Like it was a lot for us to sort of sort out, but we figured – we might have a chance to do it if we could buy ourselves a little time. So, as there was interest in someone putting the, wanting to put a seven-inch out, out, or this other guy who was from a bigger label wanting to like do a record deal, it was like, okay, well, let's not blow this opportunity. Let's let's sort of fake it until it's a real band again thing. And and that ha- and That's what we did. So you guys kind of reconvened, got
0: you know figured out. And then the kind of started to put together knapsack,
1: yeah, we did um there was a band we had tried to do we did knapsack with a couple different bass players as a trio, and then um we there was a band called Pivot in Sacramento that was like a really cool like post hardcore uh band and um for it, we said we've, we've booked a tour. I'm skipping ahead because somehow we had booked a tour. And <laughs> um, we said we've booked this tour and we're not even really a band. We've been patching these shows together with different bass players, but that's not going to work out. We don't have one right now. And so two of the guys from Pivot were like, well, why don't we just, we'll just join the band or we'll do the tour or whatever. And then that way you'll have a bass player and a guitar player. And those guys, um, You know, it was great. That was Rod and Jason, who we made the first record with. Mm -hmm. And um, that was great because those guys were the only people that we knew that were in another band that had like – that we could talk to about stuff, you know, like – they were they were super into Discord records, like they were like really into Lungfish, for instance, or things like that, where we had touch points where, you know, it's like as you're starting to do a band or to describe what you're after or to put a song together, to have that sort of common language to be able to say like, oh, this is sort of like the, you know, whatever you might call, it, like a, this is sort of like the dissonant Sonic Youth breakdown or, mm-hmm. or this part is sort of like the – You know, whatever you might want to call a part of a song or, or, you know, or admit to, to, uh, aping from another band. But there was that commonality where it was like, okay, so we all sort of talk the same language and, and, um, this is going to work. That's awesome. And at that point, so we did that. We, we had a cassette demo of two songs, I think, and we had a band and we went on tour. Um, and then it, Things kind of started moving fast from there and i I should have said at the very start of this interview that it's it's anyone. Any old friend that I've mentioned uh, if they heard that I was doing an interview where I was supposed to recap uh anything that happened longer than six months ago, they would die laughing because I have a notoriously bad memory I, <laughs> that's I okay for
0: that that's why we have the time to work through it we uh you know you can go back and correct things, and it's totally fine i I wanted to kind of think that ninety four you guys had signed a Goldenrod, correct. And we just w- did a seven inch. So we, which one, the True to Form or the the Stuntman? Both of them?
1: No, uh, I want to say neither. We did the train wrecker seven inch. I think on okay. Goldenrod. It's blue. It's got a train on the front, so it's probably train Yeah, and, and that that was also uh, home to No Yeah, knife. You know, So we went from. Yeah, there was they were doing a bunch of cool stuff, and it was um, it was they were very much. Kind of in San Diego was a really fun place to, uh, to hang out at that time. Um, and there was a lot of great bands coming out of there, whether it was like the No Knives and the Boilermakers that were doing something more similar to what we did, or if it was the Rocket from the Crips and the Drive Like Jehu's that were just amazing. Or like, you know, we'd end up at parties with like the guys from Supernova who were just a, a really good time. And it was just a, it was a great time. So we we would go up to we started to be able to go up to the Northwest and um we had met some like minded people. Uh you know, we did a show with Sunny Day Real Estate before their first record came out. We were uh to this day big fans of the tree people and and certainly huge tree people fans at the time, mm-hmm. went up and were able to play a show with those guys. We met John and Polly from seven six four hero. We met the Hush Harbor guys and so that was all happening, and plus, we, you know, it was a weird time. So we would play, like, you know, we would play, go up there and play with bands that were on K Records, or you know, like that we're doing. Sound wise, we're doing something very different than what we did, but like, but but it was all kind of the same thing at that time, um, which was a cool cool thing about that time. Well, I was and very of, different than, than now.
0: I, I was laughing, kind of looking through all the bands you're sort of associated with and, and mentioning and being on you know, coming to be on alias, it was like Archer's Yola Tango. How the hell did you get roped into post hardcore? Like you know, touring with pavement and jawbox and drive like Jehu, I just was like, you know, where does that it's just funny, like you would think that it wouldn't turn that way, but it did.
1: Well it well yeah, and it sort of goes back to the um like you said earlier, you sort of play your mutual aesthetic. I mean the records that we were listening to when we moved to Davis and we're down at the college radio station 24 seven, I mean, I, at, at that point, it's like, I was done listening to um, the records that you might think that the first or that the knapsack records sound like, and, and on to like getting really into the pavements and the, and those different things. And, and so, but it's like the music you play and the music you're listening to that minute are usually very different. You know, it's like, we had gelled around this thing that we were really into at a certain time. And that was what that band was going to be. But that didn't stop us from listening to, you know, records on merge that were completely different or things like uncle Tupelo that were completely Mm -hmm. different or, you know, it's, um, but we were never going to be a band that whose next record sounded like uncle Tupelo, um, But that's just, I think that's, it's that time, it's the time, it's, I think that's a part of what was going on at that time, but I think it's also a part of being, you know, 25 or whatever we were. Yeah,
0: but those, I mean, you, I read, you know, the, for this Silver Sweepstakes touring, you know, it was Pavement, Rock from the Crypt, Jawbox, like, those are some fucking awesome
1: tours. (laughs) You know, (laughs) yeah i mean we we were definitely accused of living a bit of a charmed existence early on um because like I said, we had gone up to Seattle and we had made friends with uh the people I mentioned who were you know super fun and cool and then we we went down to San Diego and we happened to get to be um Friends with Paul from Rocker from the Crypt, and he lived in this house with a with a couple friends that we always stayed at and and had a good time at. And um and then from there it was like you know there was this band A Miniature that was awesome and uh, Mark Trombino played drums on their last record. Uh, we got to be friends with those guys and the No Knife guys, and so it all um in those two places you know we could we touring was super fun or just to drive down there to play a show um was super fun and then but even in our hometown we couldn't you know i mean we were never a big band in Davis or Sacramento or anything like that we were always like this thing um that uh you know th- those those towns were into very different kinds of scenes at the time and what we were trying to do we had to to look for pockets of people that sort of got it, which was not to say that it was like high art or hard to get, but it, it was just like, I, I, more than anything, it was just kind of uncool. Like no one was, there wasn't a name for it. There wasn't like, um, it, it was, I guess more than anything, it was a tough sell. Like when we would try to book those tours, people would say, you know, what do you sound like? And, you know, I'd, uh, good luck with that. Yeah. Trying to make that make sense into someone who, you know, who's booking completely different kinds of bands. You know, it's like it was, it was just a very different time. And then
0: I wanted to kind of bring up the word. I was going to bring this up later, but it's kind of a good point. I mean, emo—it's obviously synonymous with you guys, good or bad. Um, and you're mentioned as a band from that era and influential, and they're referenced. What was? You, I mean. Was it around at that time? So, like, 95? I mean, and were you... Was it at the point where you are trying to get away from it? Was it a blessing or a curse? Because, again, I, I thought from, you know, it, being on Alias, having all those bands, I initially, I didn't think that. I was just like, these guys are making these super hooky songs. <laughs> and it just, you know, got roped in.
1: Well, you know, I mean, it, so there was a time when... Everything was something core, right, yeah, totally, um, and so when emo core came around, the idea that there was this term emo core was just like, well, someone had just thought of another word to stick in front of core, yeah. and I remember being in a car and someone saying, Oh, something about like the first green day record or something oh it's it's you know it's emo core, or I, I think even uh, like an early no effects record, someone was like, oh, that's emo core, but then like when in more like hardcore environments the whole like flopping around on the floor yep. screamo thing that was like then that was emo and i was like well I, you know at this point it's like you've got over here you've got green day writing love songs and that's kind of a an uncool whatever—that's a very different thing than what their peers usually do, or whatever back back then, and you know, early early on, certainly different than what Operation Ivy was doing, for instance. And then, and I, then the flop around on the floor, like hardcore stuff; those were so completely different. I'm like, well, you're just grabbing at straws. Now it's like it wasn't—it it wasn't until the you know the. The other thing happened, which was the Christy Front Drives and the Minerals and the Boys' Lives and the Giants' Chairs and the No Knives and Jimmy Eat World. When, when those bands, when we all sort of came together of like, well, every two were included, at least two of those bands, yeah. that was when it was like, okay, the world has decided that, you know, it was confusing at first, but it's not confusing anymore. This is now officially that.
0: Interesting. Yeah. the I mean, when I was talking to Jim from Jimmy World, he kind of, when he th- was emo, it was like the Screamo bands. It was, yeah. you know, it was all the, it was like super dissonant, you know, it was, it was aggression. It wasn't pop hooks and girls and love. Um, yeah. And so that was that I had always thought, okay, well, emo Screamo. And then it started to just, oh, well, this band, this, it just, again, it just got so diluted even at that time. Um, And of course the East coast, West coast, I love hearing these different stories from all over, you know, what, what labels again, I never messed with lookout, you know, it was more the East coast labels. Mm -hmm. It was discord uh, more. So, so it's also interesting to regionally what stuff you got into and what you related uh, to things. But I, I do think that that point of, yeah, the mineral giants chair, you know, boy's life, that was, definitely it was like, oh, okay. And of course, you guys were on the Don't Forget to Breathe comp, which was, um, I think, an introduction for a lot of people, um, you know, as like a early intro of like, oh, is this what this is? Or what's this scene? Or um, that was an interesting, I mean, that was a compilation big for me.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Crank was certainly uh, right there in the middle of all that. Yeah. Did you,
0: what was the, I guess, I mean, before we jump to the, you know, the, the comp, I think the, the alias stuff, I mean, um, you guys put out um, a bunch of records for them and, you know, stuck with it. It wasn't, you know, hopping around. And um, what about that made a great relationship, you know, as you guys made a few records for them?
1: Well, you would have asked earlier, I, I think you asked how the hell did we end up on alias records and that came out of you know those were the records we were listening to when our when we signed to alias archers of loaf were kings of the world in our circles you know i mean we loved those records um we had seen archers live and just thought they were insanely great and um you know, I'm, the the record that Alias put out by American Music Club, and the record they put out by Yellow Tango, I like those records a lot too. And and but that had happened like years before, mm-hmm. and then and then. Alias sort of went after the North Carolina stuff and they signed Archers of Loaf, small that became Small 23. And Eric Bachman had been from the Archers, had been in that band, but had left. And then a band called Picasso Trigger, which was kind of a different thing, but part of the same thing. And I mean, we were super hot on that stuff. And so we were at the time, we were talking to this label called Thirsty Ear, which didn't stick around for very long, but at the time was like, I I think it was like, Beggars Banquet, who is UK based, was this was going to be like their foray into the to like a more American-based label, or mm-hmm. they shared offices with Beggars in in the U.S. or something. I I, I don't know exactly how that all worked, and then we are talking to Mammoth, and Mammoth was a weird label at the time because they had put out some cool records that um, they put out some cool like Indianish records, but they had started to flirt with like the post nirvana gold rush and had put out some some really you know they'd put out a seven mary 3 record and they had that swingy big band um squirrel uh, zippers uh, squ- squirrel Nut zippers and so that was a weird label um and then the third one that we we're talking to was alias and you know at the time we thought Alias was a cool record. They'd put out some of our favorite, you know, records of recent memory and um and they had they had money to do like an indie label at um like with you know, people have said like, oh, it's like an indie label but with major label budgets. The woman Delight, who runs that runs that label, um came into some money a long time ago, I think through her husband. And so it's it's uh, kind of a hobby slash passion project for her.
0: That's awesome,
1: so that seemed like a good deal, and the reason we stuck around is because when you signed to alias records um it's it's a little bit like the hotel california you uh you can you can come anytime you like, but you can never leave <laughs> and uh, we could maybe get to that part of that in the last year we've we've reacquainted ourselves with um with with that phenomenon with them
0: yeah, that's always fun the uh i mean I'd love to talk about server sweepstakes the cellophane i was looking on spotify most played song um out of your whole catalog yeah uh,
1: that was a weird um that was a weird time and to sort of set the stage a little bit i guess there was a little bit of a um of a false hope that we were going to be like a post nirvana um thing, mm-hmm. which is just, uh, and, and I think that happened with Sunny day real estate and, and they're, you know, sort of their single, there was a single on that record when, when it came out around that same time, um, people hadn't really figured out what was going to happen after Nirvana or they hadn't figured out that it wasn't repeatable and, and that it wasn't going to happen again. So, like I said, when we signed to alias, although that's a small label, like there was interest from mammoth who had major label money or different things like that. And, you know, there were trade magazines back then that had us as like, um, you know, a, a sought-after sort of uh, buzzy, like bidding war type band. Mm-hmm. And um, so we – there was a little bit of that happening and some weird stuff happened where there was a time before our first record came out that the the music director at um, – K-Rock in LA, like flew to see us play in Sacramento. And there was a small group of people that I think thought maybe we were like the next big thing, which clearly we weren't. But for that reason, when our record came out it, and our record got mixed by this this guy who had done big records and things like that, and, uh, you know, we've up the label spin a lot on the video. There was a time when it was like that's how it was promoted and in even on the when we were touring behind um Silver sweepstakes, I remember it was it was like we would play like a total all ages teen Center type show one night, and then the next night it was like, oh, there' people from the radio station that you're getting played on and whatever. Baltimore or wherever it was are going to be there and they're going to do a ticket giveaway and you have to sign a thing to be given away. And it was like, but then there weren't very many people at the show. So it like our, our song getting played on the radio was not working. Oh, that's and interesting. It, it was just like a weird mixed up time of like, okay, so like in our minds and listen, we, if someone had said, Hey, you guys, you know, uh, guess what? High five, you're going to sell a million records. It's not like we were, Against that, but at the same time, I think we sort of secretly knew like well the, we know like what we're trying to do is um is a very like tuneful take on a certain thing, but it's still that certain thing mm-hmm. and so like i don't think um, I don't think this is going to play out the way that the, those Certain people thought it might, you know, and so there was a little bit of a flirtation of like, oh, it's like cellophane, which you mentioned, you know, was on 12 commercial radio stations throughout the country. And, and the video got played. It used to be on 120 minutes that if they play your video five weeks in a row, um, that means they're going to move it to the buzz bin, which – um you probably remember what that is. I don't know if everybody would. Yeah, no, but, but definitely admit, explain admit that. they were going to play you during the daytime yeah. instead of in the middle of the night, right? So, 120 minutes was like the alternative show that everybody stayed up to watch to see like weird things. Like, oh, weird. There's a whatever. There's I didn't know there was a video to this song. Um, you know, it was the indie rock show on MTV back in the day from the, in the 80s and the 90s. And then so they had the, the the rule of thumb sort of was if they play you five weeks in a row. Um, they're going to move it to the daytime, and you basically you're going to you're going to be put into regular rotation, and that had that was the path that many a big band had followed, right? Mm-hmm. And so we got played. It's like okay, we got played once, and then we got played the next week, and then we got played the next week, and we got played the week after that, and so we got played the four times, and we stayed up <laughs> to see if we were going to get played the fifth time, which meant like okay, this is like a new world. You get to get played on MTV during the day, like holy shit, that's crazy um and i was like no that's that's not gonna happen <laughs> and that sort of marked that was like the line in the sand of like okay what kind of band are you going to be like okay okay now it's official you are not going to be the daytime mtv band so you can sort of you can go back to regular programming back to this idea of like you know you're going to play all ages shows in basements and that's how most of touring is going to be you know Wow! So
0: from that moment, I mean, did, did Alias really? That's it. I guess I never thought about that. I mean, it really was that gold rush, and being like, "Who's next? Who's going to make it?" And everyone just
1: running as fast as they can to whatever they thought. Oh, totally. I mean, and listen, we weren't the weirdest band that you know people thought that about. I mean, they thought that about Tad, or they thought yep. that about. I mean, any number of, like, really weird bands. I mean, they thought that about the Butthole Surfers, right? I mean, they thought that about any number of, like, actually really weird bands where we were not, um, you know... You guys were a rock band. We were not a weird band. We were just a rock band, but we weren't going to... It wasn't going to be that type of thing, probably. Yeah. And it it wasn't. But, you know, it was like when... Going back to it being, like, a very confusing time, when like we gra like silver sweet steaks was out or coming out blair and i graduated from davis we play we opened for pavement in sacramento on the crooked rain tour which to us i mean that was like that was a hometown show for them because they were from stockton that was 20 minutes from where we had graduated from college you know uh three days before and it was like it was the biggest show we'd ever played it was in a proper theater in sacramento and um, it was a big deal. And then we drove overnight and we played our first show in Boulder, which was with Chrissy Front Drive and at uh, Club 156, which was like the place back in the day. And so it was, I mean, we, that right there just tells you that it was like worlds colliding and things getting sorted out. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that... And as much as we, as much as we loved, like, you know, playing with pavement was Insane and great and super fun, but it's like playing that show with Chrissy Front Drive. It's like, you know, the 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 kids that were there got it on a different level than the people that were just waiting to hear Pavement play.
0: And then that was when did you feel okay? This is this is what this is. Here are our peers. These are this is kind of what it's going to be. Because again, from that point of hey, we've only got played four times. Now it's back to. You know, they're playing these clubs and kind of doing it on yeah, the ground.
1: Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it felt more normal to just sort of go back to the original plan anyway. And we had met – we played a show. So Christy Front Drive, those guys, um, some of those guys were in a band called Turnkey. And um, when Knapsack just had like a demo tape, um, Turnkey came out on a West Coast tour and we ended up playing a show with them. And so we had said – Oh, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to go. We'd lo- we'd love to play in Denver or Boulder sometime. And we'll, be, you know, kind of was the classic thing where it's like you stay in touch. Either you, um, you know, you become pen pals, or uh, you know, you keep the phone number for when you're going to book the tour. Yep. And um, they made good on it. You know, it's like they were like, yeah, we remember you guys. We, we you know, we liked your band and. um come play we'll do a show we'll play with you guys uh we play at this place 156 that's all ages it usually is like sold out the kids are like really into this stuff there and it'll be great and sure enough it's like we drove and, and we met those guys and then um i remember meeting the mineral uh guys uh we we were set we were catching we were we did a tour and then we had to like drive kind of a long ways to catch up with archers to start playing with archers. We played like five shows with them in the South. And um we they there's they were playing in Austin and we said, Oh well we're not on that show but we'll just go watch it because we really like them. And the mineral guys came over and they're like, oh we know who you guys are, you're in that band knapsack and it was again it was like that you had to find your people because yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't that common. So they like came to us and were like, Oh, we're in this band mineral. We live here in town and we know who you guys are. We like your single or your record or, I mean, and, and then one by one that just sort of happened to happened with Christy front drive. It happened with mineral. We did a tour with boys life and we hadn't met them yet, but like the tour got set up because we were, you know, we were fans of each other's bands and, um, and, and we got on famously with those guys and, you know, just like one by one, um, that sort of network came together.
0: Yeah, it's just it's it's almost like this the storybook you you would think of how it, how it would happen. You're meeting all the right people. Um, yeah, you know,
1: but you didn't know You um, didn't know. You knew, you knew that you liked their band a lot and you knew that um they were like the nicest people ever. I mean, come on, Chris from Mineral is like the nicest guy ever. Yes. And and all those guys are nice. Um, I shouldn't single him out, although he is really fucking nice. Um, well, I was the last like time new, oh, oops, sorry. And I was going to say
0: that when I was at um, South by Southwest he called me this past year, just called me out of the blue and said, hey, I'm recording, why don't you come over and hang out? You know? And then yeah. hung out, listened to him record a song, and he's hey, you want to just come over and hang out tomorrow? I was like, yeah, sure. So we just listened to, like, his record and told me a bunch of... And then It was just the most relaxed, chill, like, I don't know, like you're instantly like, you know, friends and there. I just think the, in those times, the good people pop out and are those connectors. I think Eric from Christopher yeah. Front Drive, same thing, pretty, A a nice a, a connector and just, yeah. I like you, I like you, let's play together. We have the same feeling. And then, I mean, that's that community part that I think is so lost today. It's through text. I mean, we haven't, we've only emailed and, you know, talked, but it's like, it was that face to face connection the music came first and then you had this connection when you met
1: yeah totally and and i mean listen those tours weren't so glamorous that um it's like you needed the people to be nice and you needed the bands that you were going to see play every night to be great because those tours were a little rough and and it's not like um they were so glamorous that you could you could let people that weren't nice slide by because it was like we're all in this together and uh, there are going to be a couple nights on this tour that actually really suck but it's like you knew the guy you knew the people were nice and you knew the you liked the bands but there was no sense of like oh this is Chris from Mineral he's going to be you know someone that people are like um fawning over in 15 years there was no sense of that it was like oh this guy actually was nice enough to walk over and say i know your band i bought your single and i understand why you aren't just in like a Grunge band or a ska band or any of the things that would make your life easier in 1994, you know. Can you talk about that? Because I think that was an interesting. Like 94 was definitely
0: the. I was in in high school at the time, and you know, it was so many different things converging. And if it was if it was ska or was it you know grunge? Um, I, I mean, and then for you guys to not sound like that, and then someone notice it, it must have been such a weird thing cuz every inkling in your body must be like all right we're in a band we're going to we're we're going to sound like this or you know
1: yeah i mean i don't you can't fake it i guess is the thing it's yeah. like uh you know when it comes to being in a band or in any sort of other um creative uh you know Output or extension of yourself. It's like you can think on paper, oh, it would make my life easier to do this. You know, it's like – but you can't – Yeah, you can't fake it and you wouldn't be good at it anyway. You know, it's like I would be – you know, I just – it's like you have to – your heart has to be in it. And again, it goes back to the thing of like none of that stuff was so glamorous that you would do it because you thought it was the path toward um, rock stardom or – coolness or any of that like it wasn't um you know it wasn't cool it wasn't what was happening at the time
0: yeah no definitely it was it was definitely doing something and but there was a community around it that was connecting and you had like-minded which i think was what made it great um is that it was kind of it wasn't like you were going against what everything was it was this is what feels good and this is what we want to do um and you guys were connecting those dots um that's awesome. That's really cool. Those, I mean, those early tours and meeting all those people. And yeah, it's like everyone thinks, "Oh God, must have been so great back then." Guess what? No one fucking showed up. You know, sometimes. Yeah, you I know, it's like
1: <laughs> someone dig- someone digs out a flyer and they, you know, post it on uh, somewhere on the internet, and you see people freaking out, being like, "Oh my God!" I would give my, you know, left. Less- arm to have been at that show and it's like you didn't want to be at that show i was at that show you didn't it wasn't you know it was like um it's not how you thought it's not how you think it probably was
0: yeah yeah There was. i mean the first times i was seeing jimmy world and promise ring it was at colleges or vfw's and there was you know you could kind of you knew everybody in the room um it wasn't like this tertiary a uh, group of people that found out about it from the radio. Yeah. <laughs> like... no, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, I think, too, the... I mean, quickly, the... Or, I mean, t- two years later, you guys had Day 3 of My Life, um, which Mark Trombino produced, and, I mean, that was just... I was looking back at kind of the year. I mean, he had done Boy's Life, Jimmy, uh, No Knife, Boilermaker, and I think that same year, he did Dude Ranch,
1: Yeah, he did did the Blink-182 record after us. I don't know if it was the same year, but I know that it was after us. Yeah, but it just, that's, I mean, there was so
0: much stuff, you know, happening at that moment. Was it the same, what expectations, I mean, obviously, yes, I understand you guys want to do Successful Be The Band, but what were kind of you guys thinking, like, this is what we think is going to happen, or what was, what, what were your thoughts from that record?
1: Here's what we were thinking. We were thinking that we didn't like the way our first record sounded. Mm-hmm. And um, now I sort of – it's like I couldn't listen to that record for a long time without just sort of cringing at certain things about the way that it sounded. And now I'm, I've, I'm over it, and it just <laughs> reminds me of the time, and it's it sort of charms me in that way and distracts me from the, the other more technical thoughts. But we were thinking um, – That, you know, I mean, I remember thinking, why does, like, the snare sound on the Boys Life record that they probably spent, like, $1,000 making sounds infinitely better than any snare that I've ever recorded. And, like, why is this so hard? Like, why can't we, like, who's the guy that will, like, get us and and we can say, you know, um, we can talk in that way that I was talking earlier. Like, um, yeah, yeah. I want the snare sound from, uh, you know, the first Fugazi record, or whatever you might say to someone, and just have them get it and be and be like, well, you're not going to get that, but it, but I know what I like. I get the reference type of thing, mm-hmm. you know. It's like we want, um, you know, it's like seaweed used to have like the seaweed records sounded good and they had big guitars and. And so we're like, well, they just do that themselves. And like, why, why is this so hard for us to like figure out? Why don't we like the way our first record does? And so in searching for the guy that could sort of speak our language, it was like, well, this guy, um, he just so happens to be the drummer of Drive Like Jehu. And so like, that's, that's a pretty solid trump card when you're both talking about, I like, I guess threefold for me because he's a drummer. So it's like one, yeah, he, he, you're going to be able to like talk a common language with him because it's like, you're not going to have to explain things when the guy's in this band that you totally love. I mean, I listened to drive like Jay this week um, <laughs> Two, he has played on good, re- like good sounding records and he's made good sounding records. So like, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. And then like three, like Mark Trombino is, um, you know, a hundred times better at playing the drums than I am. So like, like It was easy to say, like, this guy's got this, you know, like Mm -hmm. we can we can sort of hand the reins over to this guy and he will lead us to uh, the down the path of records that sound good, uh, which we didn't think our first record did. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's and, awesome. and he didn't disappoint. I mean, the the first thing he had us do was like, well, we're not just going to step into the studio. We're going to do like a week of pre production, and you guys are going to come down here, and like, we're going to like sort of sort out these songs together. Which, and you know, and we would go into situations like that. We were a bit of a ramshackle bunch, and he didn't know us. He didn't know that about us yet, but he found it out quickly. And it was like, it was a little bit like schools in like. Like you guys get, I'll push record when I think you're ready for me to push record. And that time isn't right now, clearly, you know, so and he would, I mean, he. but again, nicest guy ever. He's, he's the sweetest guy ever, but he was like, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to do that to you. Like that, when you guys think you're playing to get like, you, you guys think you're playing the same thing during that part but you're not playing the same thing. And he was, you know, and he was right. So we would break it down and we'd be like, okay, what do you, what do you think we're doing right here? You know, it's like, oh, we weren't on the same page. Thanks for that. Like, let's fix it. And then like, okay, once we, you know, and it's like, okay, one song done on to the next. And he could just sit there and be a producer, you know, and be like a guy who was like, I want, you know, I want you guys to be ready to, to, Make a a solid record
0: that's awesome. What were some of the
1: standouts from that record that you dig? Um, the, uh, you know I uh, decorate the spines a good time, and i the thing I remember um is in the middle part it ended up getting mixed. Fairly low, but there's like some, um, there's like some guitar shrill chaos that happens sort of like in the, like the breakdown part where it's just Mm -hmm. me playing drums, Blair singing. And I think everything else is just like feedback. And um, I was like, I was like, what do you – I was like, I totally dig that. Like, I dig like, the, um, like the dissonance uh, that's happening in that part right there. I'm like, hey, Mark, what do you think of it? And he's like, I think you're ruining a perfectly good pop song. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it was like – it and it's like, wait, the guy from Drive Like Jay who is like telling us, like, don't fuck with your pop song. Um but uh, too, I'm glad we I'm glad we kept it. And, you know, I, I, I like that part. But I just remember, like, it was like the ultimate vote of non-confidence. Like and you were so stoked yeah. to ask him and then bad said, idea. No. Yeah. Bad idea. buddy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, that's
0: awesome. Um, anything from those, you know, what what tours were happening in in 97 um, that were is there whether were, there, were there the same bands or the same era? Was it? Was it starting to change? Did you start to see the um the audience change or I mean that was i mean for ninety seven for me I was doing a radio show at the time as well in college and the band like I could just feel the records coming in if it was crank sending them one day or if it was um a label from the east Coast and what were some stuff from that time frame
1: yeah i mean i think i I definitely think that was both i think the record we made was um, a, uh, you know, I think the first, it was like the first record was us figuring out how to make a record. The second record was like Statement of Purpose. And mm-hmm. and I think like, I don't know if we meant to do that, but it's like we pared down to a three piece. We did it with Mark. And when in doubt, those songs are like a little simpler. Like we were very into, like, uh, you know, we just sort of pared it down. And it and it, that was, in my mind, that was sort of our statement of purpose record. And I think that coincided with things like you said, where it started to be like, this is a thing, there's a, there's a thing going on. There are bands that sound like this, and they're on these couple labels and they tour together and they play these types of venues. And it sort of started, it was happening, you know, yeah. it was like, Still wasn't the coolest thing. It still wasn't like, um, but 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 even but like it had started to even take over college radio, which was a which was a new thing. I mean, I think that was sort of the that was like the five year era where those bands like started to do really well in college radio. And I think the tour that we did, the tour that I remember from that record was it was Jimmy World Sincefield and us together. Um For most of the country, and um you know that it was kind of like a piecemeal tour where each band did a little like each band could sort of like cover off on a region of the country it 's like since field was um you know was a pretty big band and like uh you know sort of mm-hmm. like the the hard the northeast hardcore region they mm-hmm. you know it 's like they had that sort of like revelation cachet and then Jimmy world sort of. You know did well like midwest you know places closer to their home and um so that was you know i mean it, it wasn't a perfect tour it wasn't um you know it was by no means like a um crazy uh successful tour but it was three bands that liked each other it was three bands that got along well and and um uh, you know, it, it, that was the tour we did behind that record. I think, and probably some others that um, I'm forgetting, and who knows what else.
0: I think that the friends that make fun of you for remembering stuff, you're great. You're remembering a lot more than like <laughs> but you some... don't know.
1: But you don't know that half the shit could be like completely out of order, <laughs> or like that's not that, that tour. That's not the right tour for that <laughs> record. <laughs> well, it's just like smoke. you're throwing out yours, and I'm just trusting you, If mean, It's like if you say that Day 3 of Mighty Life came out in '97, i, I are probably right.
0: Share, but I'll decorate spine for her. We're not who we might prefer. Motives so self
1: shared sure so i have a um i have a website called swimmingly um that's about it's about the intersection of uh independent music and food culture so i, I i'm all i'm all over that i love your site
0: oh cool that's Thank awesome. you so much I yeah bet-
1: I've been doing it uh, for a little over a year now, and I am I curated the um, the food at this music festival that's happening this weekend up in Sonoma that I'm super excited about.
0: Well, then – hold on a second. Did I bug you? I might have followed you on Swimmingly and not even known that you were in Knapsack because you had done – I forget the interview you might – I don't remember uh, – I'm trying to remember which one tipped me off to it, but it was super cool, and I love the aesthetic of it and everything, and then for... Oh, thank you. um, And then, so, again, that was really awesome. Um, You were doing... Like, I just love the vibe of it. Um, Oh, that's exciting. Thank you so much. I don't know if you remember some narrative that was hitting me up.
1: super fun for me.
0: Yeah, I was... Actually, I was looking at an AP from 97, and I had saved it somehow, um, because Helmet was on the cover, and I was a big Helmet fan at that time. They were like to me, such a great band and it wasn't, it was metal, but it wasn't. And there was an ad for the record in there, um, for day three of my new life. And I just was kind of like, wow, this is kind of, this is what you had to do. You had to put it in the, uh, the AP. It was, you know, radio was still King. Um, you know, there wasn't, you know,
1: Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Vine, Makeout Club, any of those live journal, none of of that. (laughs) None of that stuff. I mean, that Knapsack never had a uh, an official website or anything like that.
0: That's what I love to hear.
1: Look at that. We're talking
0: about bands that didn't even have websites. This is perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Podcasts were only a twinkle in our eyes. <laughs> Nerding out. Uh, I was, too, I think with 98 Conversations ending right now, that was soon after. Um, was it? Am I getting the dates wrong? Of course, maybe I'm asking the wrong person. Um, yeah. but it was it was definitely soon after. Did you guys have a ton of songs that you were just ready to put out? No, we, uh, we
1: never had a ton of songs. In fact, um, I think there are ten songs on each record because contractually, um, I think our contract said a, a full length record is no less than ten songs and no less than forty minutes. Oh, that's so that hilarious. song. That song cellophane. Um, it, it, it's it's funny. I I don't listen to. Uh, I don't know what any of the knapsack lyrics mean. I didn't write any of them, and I, I'm not someone to listen. Who listens to other people's lyrics? I'm usually listening to either like the song as a whole, or or drums, or whatever. But forty more that I could take today. Uh, I'm pretty sure refers to this idea of we had to figure out how to make a. Forty-minute-long record, and and probably had about twenty-two minutes of material at the time.
0: <laughs> so there is no bonus tracks lying around.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, there, I uh, the the studio that we recorded um, uh, Silver Sweepstakes in, and then we also did one or two like compilation or like like we I think we did. The crank song, the the don't forget to breathe song there, and maybe um, dropkick from the stuntman seven inch. I think the, I think that's what we did there. So I just got a bit that that label or that uh, studio closed, and John, who's a super nice guy, the guy who owns it, um, sent me. He called me up or uh, whatever the 2013 version of that is, uh, sent me some sort of message and said, "Hey, I've got a box of knapsack." tape like analog tape here uh, where can I send it and so I just got I I don't think there's anything interesting on that but I'll I'll find a way to figure it out here one of these days
0: nice I like this I think you should
1: <laughs> But, but uh, we were not a prolific band and so odds are that if, if something is on there it's because it belongs there and <laughs> yeah if, if there was something usable, we were happy to to add it to the list and have that be one one less uh, song we had to sort out.
0: Um, I think that some of the record, um, some of the songs from that last record, definitely spoke to a lot of people. And um, skip the details, Catherine the Great, Balancing Act. Um, what were any of those favorites for you? Or just, I think that for me, that sounded the, like I love the sound of that record. Um, we play. Um, Actually, this past weekend or uh, past week, we had Catherine the Great requested, and people like usually request stuff from that record. It sounds fucking great loud, and that's what I love about some of these you know era records that you can play them super loud, and they started to sound better. Um, what was some of the things from that recording that stuck out?
1: We uh, you know we didn't we didn't track that with Mark. He mixed it, but we didn't we tracked it with Alex Newport. Mm-hmm. Who um,
0: uh, oh fuck yeah, Alex he Newport. He did.
1: Yeah, he did the early at the drive and stuff, and um, and he was in Fudge Tunnel, we, and we did it in San Francisco, and yeah, and he was in the band Fudge Tunnel. He's a, <laughs> he's a nice guy, um, and uh, you know, he and Mark have um, a very different. We didn't know who was going to mix it, and we thought maybe even Alex might mix it. And I don't remember how it all came to be, but it was to hand. It's it, on paper it's a weird record that the way that the tracks sounded when they were handed to Mark were like, um, uh, it's like the way those guys record things is pretty, um, disparate. And so like for Mark to get like a snare drum, that's like pretty, like that's tuned pretty low, like versus tight, you know, mm-hmm. and like to have to figure out what to do with that. Like, it didn't make sense on paper, and it could have been a really bad idea. But I like the way that that I like the way that that record sounds, and I like the songs. And um, I mean, I, I think, like I said earlier, like think the first record is us just trying to figure out how to be a band, make a record, whatever else. Second record is sort of like statement of purpose, like pare down and just sort of like get the simple things right. And then the third record, this conversation was us like um, like okay, I think we can stretch out a little bit, like. Sergi had joined the band and he's a good guitar player and we were, you know, it's like, it sounds silly, but like, okay. Computer had come out and there was just like something in the air that was like a little bit more of like, it's, you know, like it was a time to kind of like stretch out a little bit. People were, people were putting like analog synths on records that had, where they wouldn't normally belong. And, and sort of like loopy stuff and and um you know i we had fun with some of that there's the weird like alex loop my um the thing at the end of um one of the songs that's like uh, like a drum loopy thing mm-hmm or maybe might be construed as a drum solo is is like him, him like just trying to get like mic sounds early on in the recording and him just like saying, Hey, go play drums for 20 minutes while I like get this, like try to get like levels and stuff. And then he took that and then like did that crazy mashup at the end. So it's like, that's like, it's like strewn, it's like strewn together and it's not like one thing that I played together it's like you know it's like 18 different parts like patched together and that was just sort of like the vibe of that of that which was like stretch out a little bit oh that's awesome
0: and of course that time too was that was 98 was pretty nuts um touring wise was there it was it um was it the same was it different were your things starting to change did you see people you know, was it seeing other bands succeed or getting to certain points? And it just – that time felt, especially in the scene, it just seemed like people were starting to get picked off or they were they were breaking up.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I think there was a lot more um, – it felt more like an end than a beginning to me looking back at that time. I mean um, music was in a a pretty sad place at that time. It's like – any sort of like post-Nirvana coolness had quickly or it had over the years sort of turned to Creed, which turned to like Limp Biscuit, And then the boy band thing was big at the time, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And so like music was in a pretty sorry state of affairs in terms of like the mainstream and, um, if jimmy world had like wasn't dropped that year it's like they were i mean that was sort of like the era when they got dropped it pretty much the bands that we played with most often had broken up and we were kind of figuring out how it was all going to if there was going to be like a next step or if we were going to call it a day and and um I don't think we had said so the tour we did behind that was um was without at the drive in, and I don't think going into that tour we had said this is the last tour, but um I had a job where I had to do that tour as like my two weeks of paid time off, which mm-hmm. and that was the first that was the first time that had happened. I didn't have a job before that, but i I had a job I'd moved to San Francisco. And I and it costs a lot more to live here than where I had, was living before. And so I took a job. And so any sort of knapsack tour had to be like two weeks paid time off. And so because of that, we had to do it differently. And we had to like say like, okay, well, we can – so what we ended up doing was – I had seen at the drive-in and they were bananas. And um, But I had only seen them because our booking agent said – we wanted to do a tour where we said we need to go, we need to like borrow the back line from, we need to play on another band's instruments and we need to fly to where they are and like do, we could do the West coast, no problem, but we need to fly to where they are and do like Chicago East with them and playing their instruments. And so our booking agent who, um, became at the drive-ins manager through all like the, crazy, huge stuff, um, said, so go see this band at the drive and They'd probably, they like you guys. They'd, they'd probably let you play their instruments. They like your records. And so I went and saw it at the drive-in in San Francisco in front of like 20 people. And I don't know if you saw them like back I early did. on, but like that, I mean, you know, they would take 20 people and just like blow their doors off and and I mean, they were any you could put them in front of anyone, but it didn't matter how, many, how few people were there. Um, they were going to do what they were going to do and it was going to be bonkers. Yeah, so I, actually, I was like... Oh, sorry. I oh, was going to say,
0: no, it was the tour that I saw was Jimmy Eat World um, at the drive-in in Lazy Cane. Um, okay. And they, there's a friend found a video online from that show. Someone shot a VHS tape of them playing Fahrenheit and it's, when I explain to people sort of that time frame and them i play them that video because it's insane
1: (laughs) oh yeah i mean they were you know it's like you saw them for two minutes and you're like well i don't know if this is going to be mainstream huge or what kind of huge but like this is special and this is different and this is um this just feels like raw energy in a really cool way
0: Was that the after driving the last tour, and then you guys broke up? what was the did it kind of linger and then
1: it was you guys broke up in two thousand so or it happened to be the fifteenth anniversary of like that last proper tour, so we got home and um I got a duity music, and that was like, well, this is like a real job, and it's what I wanted you know it was it was like a marketing job and it was like what I wanted to do as a career or what I wanted to do next and what I've ended up doing. And um, so that kind of made things more complicated because it's like, well, I can't, it's like I can't do a bunch of things. Certainly, I mean, and and I think maybe that's, I I was wrong to assume like I couldn't do several things at once, but I just felt like it owed, um, I owed it my full attention and I wanted to start a family and I wanted to maybe figure out a way to buy a house. And I, you know, it's like, it was just that time. It was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do next as a band. And, um, but I know that I'm, I, I want to take this job seriously and I want to sort of shore things up financially for myself and figure out what I'm going to do next. So we got home from that tour and I took that job. And then there was this weird thing that happened where um so we were out of so three records for alias was what we owed them unless like they unless like a major label came along and um unless they did like a partnership with a major label. And so we were out of our we were out of our contract. Thales, um, to make new, to make new records. And so we didn't know what we were going to do next. And, um, Interscope of all people, uh, started sniffing around. And, um, I think at the time, I think there was like a, there was like one guy at Epitaph that got us and pretty much said they'd sign us, but Epitaph was pretty tough guy back then. Like it was before, um, Anti, uh, yeah, and and some other things that they've done, and um, so you know, to me, uh, Epitaph was like Pennywise, and um, that was never my thing. So that felt like it was going to be weird, and it also didn't feel like it was going to be like all that different. Like you know, it's like you know, what would it? What would a fourth record be like? And uh, you know, and so Interscope started sniffing around, and we actually went down and we played this show. Um, in front of Jimmy Iovine, had, like a private show, in front of Jimmy Iovine and this guy Tom Wally, who was, um, I have interviewed at, with Tom Wally. Oh yeah, <laughs> okay. so you know who that is. Yes, record industry hotshot. Um, <clears throat> and we played like a private show at the uh, um, at where did uh, Rivers Phoenix die? What's that place called? Uh, Cheesy La Roxy. No. um The Viper Room. Viper Room. So we play like a private show at the Viper Room for Tom Wally and Jimmy Iovine. And um it went – we played old songs and new songs. And afterward, we sat down and we had a drink with Jimmy Iovine. And he's like, I think we're going to sell a lot of records together. And we're like, this is bizarre. Okay, this is <laughs> so weird, but – You know, it was sort of like a time where it was like, well, if we're going to continue to do this, we should like do this in a different way. And all sorts of weird shit's happening. And so like, I don't know, maybe we should go beyond Interscope. You know, there's we were, you know, I mean, we're certainly open to the idea. Yeah. And so it went from like, um, I think we're going to sell a lot of records together. And they said, like, in these situations, like. I mean, like, these guys will just get up and leave in the middle of your first song if if they're, like, not into it or whatever. And so we're like, oh, God, that would suck. So they stay through the whole thing. He says, I think we're going to sell a lot of records together. And then it was like, and then nothing. <laughs> like, and then they don't return your calls. Oh, that's
0: classic. That's classic.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we were sort of like, well, that's fine. And that probably would have been weird anyway. And, um... So we said, well, we need to do like, I don't know if we had done, I don't know how much we had done on the West coast after that record had come out. So we felt like we needed to do like a little something on the West coast, even if it was going to be the last thing we did. So we set up some shows for, I want to say January of 99. um, And it was San Francisco, Orange County, LA. And then Blair and I had a conversation Um, where I said, you know, I think, um, I think, I think I'm ready to, to not do this anymore. And um, you know, we've been friends for so long and it's just, I think, you know, it's, I don't think he wanted to be done doing music. Obviously he continued to be doing music, but I think he knew me well enough to know, like, I know what you want to go do. I know you want to go start a family and I know you want to like start a career. And I know, you know, like, I kind of always, you know, knew that this point would come, maybe or something. Anyway, you know, it's like we're buddies; we've known each other forever, and so you know, we, it was not. Um, it was not. It was a hard conversation to have, but it wasn't like you know. But we, it was just okay. That's the plan. Where that's what we'll do, and we'll we'll play these last three shows, and there wasn't a there wasn't like a way to like make a grandiose. You know yeah. it's like there wasn't a place online to say like, "Hey, these are our last shows. Some people knew some people didn't we knew in advance, but it like there was no way to have it be like you know it it was not the last waltz it was uh it was just like we'll just go play these shows and it and it sort of like in a somewhat workmanlike fashion and um San Francisco was amazing and 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 that was a great night, and then we went down and we played, and that show was with um since field that i don't know who else with the san francisco show the, the last show was since field and then um and then we played the chain reaction in orange county somewhere maybe anaheim not sure and um that was without the drive-in and then we played the troubadour in in la and that was without the drive-in as well and in fact um there's a there's a video out there uh I know the guy who has it. I won't name his name, although it may have to come to that <laughs> for us to, to, to get it out of his paws. But there's a video of that. I have a cassette tape of the the audio from that from that last night, but there's also a video um, from it. And um, Omar from After The Driving comes out and plays tambourine or shakers on Decorate The Spine. And um, it was a pretty, pretty special night and a, a pretty great way for us to, to go out.
0: How are we going to get this video? Let's, we need to, uh, we need
1: to time this. (laughs) I will, I will, um, I'll upgrade my threats and see if that helps at all. Is it on VHS
0: or is it on another phone? You know it. I have, I, I convert VHS tapes. Um, I've done a bunch of, I did some mineral stuff. I've done a bunch of things, so, um, I can help. (laughs) We'll keep that in
1: mind. Nice.
0: Um, so it brings us to what everyone's kind of been excited about and I think um, excited to hear about, the reunion. And, you know, the site that you guys had set up and to see the stuff being posted and people writing things and getting really excited, um, you know, it's it's great to see um, what sparked this. And, you know, I know that it was the 15th anniversary of the last tour, but kind of... Were there early conversations, or was it like, hey, let's try this and I'd love to kind of hear how it came about?
1: Yeah, the the 15th anniversary thing is a total retrofit. I, it's certainly not, it has never even been a conversation that we had. Of, um, I think it was me that just sort of figured that out. But, um, you know, I always, Blair and I had kept. We we keep in touch. We see each other, you know, we grew up the same place we see each other over the holidays, usually when we're home for um for Christmas or whatever. And then I'll always go out and see the jealous and I love I think those records are amazing and um like just really like accomplished and smart and savvy and, and great. And um I'll always go out and hang with Blair when they come through town and all those guys are nice, Bob and everybody else. And um we would talk so we would talk about you know, I'm I'm like the the band archivist, and so I've got like a bunch of old photos and a set lists and flyers and a bunch of stuff. And we had just sort of said like, well, it would be fun if we could get those records reissued or if we could do like – at least get them back out on vinyl and do like some cool packaging around it with like all the old stuff I have. And um, the Gel Sound manager, Tom, who was in Sunday's Best and was in a band called Skip Loader that we played with like way back in the day mm-hmm. – um, he started sort of working on that and he's a go-getter and was trying to make that happen. And I, it doesn't look like it's going to, um, but that, that sort of forced us to kind of have knapsack conversations, which is not something that we had done in a really long time. I mean, I I would go out and I'd see Blair, I'd be hanging out with Blair and he'd say, Oh, so-and-so said a really nice thing about, this kid came up and said a really nice thing about knapsack or told this really interesting, like, charming story about knapsack or so-and-so showed me, like, I think one time he said, you know, this crazy, like, somebody has a knapsack tattoo or something like that. And it was like – there was definitely, like, a conversation of, like, it's weird that this thing won't die because, like, we weren't a big band when this was happening and, you know, you would just think that this would go away a little more than it has. And it's just kind of curious, like, oh, this keeps – like it's this thing is kind of not going away, and so maybe we should put those records out, and then, and then Tom, the Jealous Sound manager, was like, "Well, would you would you guys play shows if the records came back out?" And Blair and I had always just said, because I mean, we we treat that stuff with kid gloves, just because, like, you know, we're always like, our friendship is more important than any of this stuff, mm-hmm. and like, uh, you know, it's like I don't want to go down any path that puts that into into any sort of risk, you know. So it's like it's easier to just have the first instinct be no, um, than it is to like, you know, we just want to be so careful about that. And so, you know, it was kind of like, well, I do it. And Blair's like, well, I do it. And, um, you know, Sergi had always sort of said like I'm up for whatever. And, but we had said we were going to do it around the reissuing of the records. And again, I don't think that's going to happen. And then the fest, the festival in Florida called the fest came through with like, um, I think they had heard that these conversations were maybe happening a little bit, that it wasn't out of the question. And so they threw out an offer. And that was the first time where we had to, like, instead of just continue saying maybe to each other, like, we owed someone an answer. Like, we owed someone an answer, a yes or no. Like, all right, are you guys going to play the show or not? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like I threw out, like, a formal offer. Like, you can say no, of course, but, like, you can't just, you know – it can't be like, oh, we'll pick up this conversation next time Blair comes through San Francisco. Like this is not going to wait for that. And that's kind of how that conversation had gone. It had been like a – you know, it had been kind of over time that we had warmed up to the idea a little bit.
0: You know what's interesting is I had emailed Blair when I just – I heard things in the nerdery that I – my circles that I roll in. And I emailed him, hey, what's going on? And he – all he wrote back was, what rumors? <laughs> yeah. So, was there denial, denial until uh, until the announcement, or was it you might have been still going back and forth?
1: Uh, I don't know when. When was this?
0: I can look at the Gmail. I mean, it was definitely it was definitely before anything was announced, but not that far off.
1: Oh yeah, no, it was probably just denial.
0: Yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah,
1: I, yeah, I got a couple. <laughs> I, you know, I, I re I returned a couple of emails that were like, "Oh, that sounds really interesting. What what did you hear and, and who from?" You know, just because. <laughs> Uh, you know if it's like if you're trying to keep the cat in the bag you're trying to keep the cat in the bag what's the point of like you know it's the internet after all it's not like um it's not like the shit doesn't spread like wildfire we're all we're all pretty excited about it and and you know i mean we're just uh it's all about having fun it's all all about hanging out again Staying super positive and just uh, having a, you know, crazy appreciation for the idea that we can actually do this. Because yeah, honestly, 15 years ago, if you would have said people are going to give half a shit in 2013, I would have thought you were crazy.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Watched up Emo podcast. Uh, I'm going to keep going as long as I can, as long as my um, hours in the day stay. You um, follow me on Twitter at Watched up Emo or Zuckerberg site Facebook.com/slash Emo. And if you're ever in New York City, come hang with us every first Thursday at Idle Hands Bar for Emo Night. So until next time, thanks.